0: And welcome back to part two of this groundbreaking Antarctica episode. Uh, Forget about all the hype out there. I think Cliff is going to put this to new heights, pun intended. (laughs) And uh, when right before the break, Cliff, we went into the pure existential aspects of these things. And... uh, 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 I know we also touched up on the ancient stuff. So I think we should take it from there and, and, like I said, try to move up in the timeline. Do you
1: have anything to add to the note where we're at? Nothing that occurs. No, I'm happy to move into more modern times.
0: Well, um, let's see. Let's not go too fast because, like I said, uh, we have traces from these urns that the Russian found. And according to them, it was a pretty old civilization. So I think that if it's connected to the what we today call the Atlantic, I think it could have been maybe the mother culture of Atlantis or predating Atlantis maybe. Because I'm pretty sure that Atlantis, and I won't go into that here now because we have uh, programs, some recorded already about that. Yeah, yeah, I understand. That what we call Atlantis today is a reference to uh, maybe a colony or a survival of this culture that was in the Antarctic Ridge, but according to your model, maybe uh, there's no room for a continent in Atlantic Ridge, because maybe you reject the uh, notion of um, tectonic.
1: W- yep. Yeah. yeah, the tectonic plates move, but the the mechanism and everything that uh, that uh, is uh, proffered for them is in my opinion bogus that they're moving because of the expansion of the earth the expansion of the earth can be thought of as um uh occurring because of high energy particles from outer space so this gets really weird okay the sun is not sun is mostly iron uh, with gold and silver and a few other heavy metals in it. It's not nuclear. There's no hydrogen fuel or any of that. It's, it resembles nothing so much as the tip of a uh, TIG torch, mm. uh, the ignited tungsten in an electrified uh, ionized atmosphere.
0: Yeah, but but it's a matter of science. We know that cosmic radiation, although we don't know everything about it, we know that th- those high frequencies do indeed influence everything on the
1: sun. Right. I mean, on uh, Earth. On the Earth, but see, here's the here's the mechanism by which I was going to direct our thinking.
0: Okay,
1: if uh, if you took, for example, that our Earth does not have a molten, um, that our Earth is is alive and its core is in fact a plasma. A very highly energetic electric a sun, uh, correct? Right. As though it might be considered to be a sun, then that plasma has a very interesting characteristic. Plasmas capture cosmic rays. Right. Now, in the in the case of our sun, the cosmic as the sun's. Um, energetic activity dampens down cyclically there are going to be times that more cosmic rays come around the sun to strike the planets behind it, including ourselves. We're in one of those periods of times now. And the more cosmic rays that come through, we're now learning that oh look, this cosmic ray barrage that hit us in 2003 not only stripped off 5.5% of our physical atmosphere and 15% of its depth, but it caused the Banda Achi earthquake. And it may be Uh, stated that the cause of that earthquake was an expansion event that occurred as a result of these cosmic rays coming in and being caught by the plasma within the middle of the Earth. Mm. And then if we extend that thinking a little bit further, as that plasma grows, there's something that is around it, which is the rest of the planet. And so all this energy coming into the plasma has to do something because it can't grow infinitely. And so what actually occurs is energy becomes so condensed so packed in there that it actually converts into matter and so it's the reverse of a nuclear explosion so to speak and it's a matter creation event and those matter creation events cause the earth to expand because we're expanding from the middle out and thus we crack the way we do so it's as though we had a um, a rigid shell around an orange as it's growing that shell is going to crack the skin is going to crack as the orange grows within it and pressurizes it and it's very much that kind of a situation with the earth and so uh, our earth is gaining cosmic rays that that come on down they go through all of us they smack right through the planet itself, the matter, but they get captured by the energy at the core of our our mm. particular uh, planet now we know that this is not occurring with Mars that Mars is a dead planet relative to its core and it may be as a result. So, so the, the inner
0: sun in Mars is either alter- altered or, or dead? Correct. It can't be dead because then it wouldn't have uh, atmosphere and gravity and all that
1: no, those, those are immaterial to that. Oh, okay. uh, Newton was wrong. Gravity does not relate to mass or um, um, that level of energetic activities. So it would retain its gravity even after. Earth would retain its gravity. Could it still harbor life? Correct, it still could. Wow. But the, um, the thinking is at the moment that something occurred to Mars where Mars was struck by a... Um, obviously. A very large object, not the uh, nuclear explosions that what's his name talks about.
0: Yeah, uh, but- Brandenburg. No, no. Obviously, the exploded planet of Van Flandern. Obviously, correct. Because you can see that uh, the south side of Mars was. Uh, Tilted towards that So uh, it must have been It really got a beating Even we got a lot of water But we don't have to go too much into that Because we just had A program with uh, Joseph Farrell Called, it's not out yet But but it's called Ancient War in Heaven And we go very deeply into the Exploded planet hypothesis Well
1: then we can just jump ahead so to speak
0: Yeah because at this point when people listen to this That program will already be out (laughs) Okay. Cool. <laughs>
1: about this. Uh, this, this helps. This helps yep, a lot. Yep. Okay. So, so Earth then is actually in, in an expansion condition all the time, and the North Atlantic Ridge is a result of that expansion. So, all of oh, these things God. are new and modern and not part of uh, ancient anything. And in fact, as an oceanographer, I studied oceanography for a while when I was a kid, thinking I was going to go into that, but there mm. was it, life turned me another direction. In any event, though, if you study oceanography, you find a very shocking fact that nobody denies, they just can't explain. Mm -hmm. And that is that the bottoms of our oceans are newer than any of the land on the surface. Wow. And since the bottom of the ocean... But but,
0: but hang on, hang on. They say that the Caledonian mountain range, which I incidentally live on, is the oldest and most stable. Okay. That doesn't compute uh, with this model,
1: or does it? Sure it do, Sure it does. It's not in conflict at all. Okay. We're expanding, and the easiest place for the expansion to occur is at the weakest spot of the surrounding envelope to that expansion. The weakest spot in our Earth is the middle of all the oceans. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so we're always adding new land in the Pacific. There's no such thing, as, by the way, as a subduction zone. You can't find a subduction zone anywhere on this planet. Anywhere they go... Sorry,
0: what does that... I don't, I'm not familiar with that uh, term, subduction. Uh,
1: su- subduction zone is the area where supposedly the Pacific plate is diving in underneath the North American plate, and that's what causes the ring of fire right. in the North America. It's the mm. idea that the Pacific plate of the ocean uh, uh, that underlies the ocean is being shoved under the North American continent. The two grind together and create volcanoes and stuff. Mm. That's a bunch of absolute excrement. It's It's... Really poor thinking
0: and and just for those folks out there who are not w- aware, uh, these things aren't written in stone. We learn it in school as if it's a matter of fact, but they're just as much of a hypothesis or a theory. M- maybe it's better to say as is evolution, relativity, all that stuff. It's not like proven beyond uh, any <laughs> exactly <laughs> doubt so it's it's room for uh, alternating schools, and there's always been competing schools of thought. In these sciences, about how these things work, so I just have to throw that out there before anyone thinks you're a complete cuckoo, just takes everything out of your ass. This is <laughs> this is legitimate. It is le- just right. that you you're in a minor school compared to the dominant uh, uniformitarian right. today.
1: Right. And as as a uh, as I have stated in the past, just because I may be crazy does not necessarily you make you wrong. wrong. <laughs> 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 uh, exactly. Truth is is what it so is. The two- Exactly. And so so you can't find a subduction zone anywhere. So the tectonic plate model is, is basically bogus, and it was the representation of the thinking at the time. And as you say, officialdom just teaches it to us now because it keeps us quiet, so to speak, right? Mm. And they don't have to go into stuff that they don't really want us to think about or explain. But But because we have this expansion event, uh, model, then it, it eliminates the idea that Lemuria is at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, or that Atlantis is at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, because those are new territories recently created.
0: Well, then you, you're you hard-pressed to explain the pyramids that's in uh, bottom of these oceans. No. Stand. How do you explain that? Okay, because
1: those are not in the bottom of the ocean. Those are on the part of the shallow littoral zone. At some point, it was a littoral zone. It was within the tidal area. It's not within what we describe as benthic, or the desert areas of the ocean. It's still within what we would think of as the continental shelf so you don't have for instance pyramids at the bottom of the ocean yet we find pyramids all and structures all along submerged areas of the continental shelf yeah big difference okay and so there is no pyramid at the so point. it's just
0: if the water was lower exactly it would still be connected to our current land
1: just as we see in India. If uh, if India, if the water were 120 feet lower, India would be 60% larger and we would see civilizations that, or, or remnants of a civilization that would have held twice the current population of India.
0: Yeah, and, and because people have always settled more in the coastal zones than in the mountains and inland, so it's totally logical that most of the huge cities would be, in zones that are now submerged all over the world. Correct.
1: And we see that no matter what, even in current civilizations now, you always have less of a population inland than you do along the coast. Yeah. And also we have all kinds of historical references that go back like to these stella that are that are within North America and throughout the Pacific region that were related to the Egyptians because there's some discussion about how there were bands um, of stella off of um, New Zealand as though they were put in as navigation markers. And then within 20 years, they had to do it all over again as the waters increased. And then within 20 years, they had to do it all over again. And so that there were these three uh, zones, so to speak. And we also find this off of Japan. There appears to be three stages of uh, Mm. construction that seemed to have to have had to react to increasing water levels. And then finally they gave it up or something occurred and that we don't see a continuity from that point forward. And that's probably when this great war business happened.
0: Mm. Yeah. That we also cover. You 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 said the name earlier in part one. We we call that show "Ancient War in Heaven." Correct, correct. <laughs> War in Heaven, indeed. Correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, language, but uh, that means that according to your model, then there's not room for Lemuria or an Atlantis in the traditional places. They would have to be correct. So so the current continents are more or less the same as they've always been. Then.
1: No, uh, continents, of course, are shredded in the, uh, process of, uh, the expansion. So that's why they, if you, if you, um, go to the YouTube, you can... Look for uh, Neil Adams, and he has some uh, nice graphic video. Okay, so, so
0: all the masses were one once. Correct. And then they... Right,
1: and then, then we had our first expansion event, and we got a crack somewhere. A little water went into it, and we've been cracking and splitting ever since, and we'll continue to do this. such that the idea. But that's
0: pretty mainstream. I mean, that they've all. That's the mainstream model that is just. I think the details here that the difference that
1: no huge huge difference because they say that the cracking and the splitting St- and stuff occurred on a sphere of the same size I'm saying that the sphere has grown some sixty percent yeah
0: right in addition yeah mm, mm, mm. in yeah. addition
1: to that so mm. we have much larger area now and as a result I can also if I were precise enough uh, okay so I was a student in a gymnasium in Germany in the 1960s and one of the things they did to teach us physics was they had us measure the planet the way the Egyptians used to do by taking sun sites at the bottom of wells and have the wells be two hundred um, miles apart. Uh, in relative latitude, and, and you do timing and all of this, and then you can make estimates as to how big the planet is based on the, the time and so on, right? right? So you're actually measuring the planet by physical stuff. And if, had we been precise enough then, I could take those results some nearly 60, or nearly 56 years later, and do it again, and I'm sure I would find that my my measurements were for a larger planet, albeit, you know, slightly larger. Mm. But I'm certain that that even in that 60 years, we've had enough expansion that it would be measurable. Uh,
0: According to this model, then uh, Atlantis would have to be uh, in Antarctica, then, because there's no room for a Lemuria or Atlantis in, in Pacific and Atlantic Ocean.
1: Correct. Plus, there's something else about that. We don't see subsidence. Alright, there's never been a continent that subsided, there's never been a continent that's been overtaken by water, there's never been a thousand foot high tsunami, displacement wave or anything like that. All right. Have you heard about Friesland? Well, sure, yeah. Yeah, but see, all of these can be explained under the in a much easier fashion under the expansion of the Earth model, okay. and it and it relates to uh, so. For instance, uh, right now the theoretical and maximal height that could be achieved by a tsunami anywhere around the planet is about eighty feet at the beach, and if you had an, a large enough tsunami, it could in some areas push to maybe a hundred feet, uh, several miles inland up on uh, low lying areas. But there's evidence of tsunamis or water impacts rather six and seven and 800 feet up on many mountains in uh, the Americas. The Americas has a more pristine case for the uh, catastrophe than other areas, all right, mm-hmm. simply because humans haven't eroded these these markers. But at the time that those catastrophes happened, where the water was up six and seven hundred feet up on the on these mountains, the Earth was ever so much smaller, and so we had a different set of actual physical circumstances relative to how a tsunami would manifest. You can see that as in this model, as the Earth expands, tsunamis over time are eventually going to get down to where they could not physically rise up above a certain height hmm. makes sense yeah kind of but okay uh, but, but would we expand together with the earth so we become bigger no that's that's why not i don't see there's no reason that humans should expand because the earth itself is expanding due to the cosmic rays that it captures and the new matter it creates in the middle of the earth we have the cosmic rays and stuff go right through us yeah. and our size is determined in an entirely different manner than the planet
0: well, but it's determined by the planet's condition, like uh, like the size and the gravity and stuff like that. Uh,
1: okay, you're thinking in Newton, Newtonian terms, and Newton, yeah. Newton was wrong. We proved that on the moon. According to Newton, the moon has a gravity that is one sixth of the Earth because of the of its relative mass. And yet, when we go on up there, and the Chinese just did it again, and they measure gravity, it's closer to three quarters of what we have here on Earth, uh, and so that <laughs> blows Newton totally out of the water. Okay,
0: I, I buy that, but I, I just think you chose a poor example because you know as well as me that the Moon is a freak of nature.
1: So, <laughs> so okay, all right, all right, exactly. So it's not natural. Use at all.
0: something else. What yeah. about Mars? Would Mars be shrinking if it's
1: that can't produce any more matter if the Sun is dead? Correct. It cannot. And it's not shrinking, but it's not growing. And we know that when Mars got, got smacked, it got smacked on, let's just say, on the, um, uh, the southern hemisphere. And it got hit so hard by a chunk of something that it, it created a divot on the other side of the planet. So the concussion wave went all the way through the core of the planet. And it's a thought at that point that that's when the core of the planet died <laughs> or became so, more, uh, so injured that we're still not seeing any sign of recovery.
0: No, I don't trust a planet with a dead core. So, that crushes all hopes of Mars being a future human colony.
1: I would agree. Mm. Well, Also, we find that if you look in the Jain literature, Jain is a religion out of India. It's a minority religion, but they've got a really interesting uh, take on things it, and a very...
0: Kind of a mix of Islam and Hinduism or something yeah. like that.
1: Uh, no, it's more like Sikhism than than Islam because they believe in a non-personified um, pulse. Oh, sorry. I, I mixed it with Sikhism. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, Jainism.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's a very peace-loving religion.
1: Correct. And these guys have something that's really cool, which is this uh, incredible um, – I don't want to say unbroken, but an incredible historical record and a cosmology that can be validated by the internal references within the document to astrology, or to astronomy, that we can now plot and figure out what days and times that, that could have possibly occurred. Yeah. And so their, their cosmology goes to state that humans lived on two and a half islands of life in this um, uh, solar system, those two and a half islands being Earth, and Mars. Moon, and Mars.
0: Oh, so the half is, is Moon.
1: Correct, and we were 600 billion.
0: Right. six. Yeah, okay, 600 billion.
1: Correct, on those three. And that was at the, the height of this uh, civilization, and at the time, most of us were blue or green in skin.
0: This corresponds with uh, a show we just had. It's not out yet. It's called, uh, uh, what's it called? A uh, uh human prehistory according to Esoterica, uh, that the blue race is, uh, died out that there were actually you know they used colors so they said there were yellow black white red and blue yeah and blue died out many of the ancient i think also in the tra- many traditional uh hindu lore accounts for the blue races too
1: oh sure oh yeah 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 they're well aware of that they also show the green people though
0: Wow. <laughs> not little green. Ma- no, no, not little green. Maybe. So I have to ask you then, uh, Cliff, because some ancient law, because I've been studying in, in many mystery schools in my life, you know, traditional, esoteric. Yeah. So... I found once, and that was long before I got interested in these, this stuff we're talking about now. I was more into, you know, symbolism and I didn't take things as literal back then. Sure. And they talked about different human races, or I should say the origins to the human races because today we are so mixed, but they said that uh, there were different uh, origins on different planets. So, do you have any thoughts about that for, like, green people, blue people, <laughs> etc.?
1: Sure. Um, okay, so insofar as the, the most um, – my model of uh, my understanding mm-hmm. is um, going to reflect some understanding of what the British royals think in terms of how humans came about and how some of the powers that be thinks that, think that humans came about, okay? Okay. And so let's, uh, it brings in the idea of panspermia and that uh, the hominid form of four senses in a cranium and uh, a physical body, bipedal, erect, etc., cetera, um, and uh, with a vertebra, is uh, more common throughout universe than we would tend to guess. And so more space aliens... Well, oh, put- that's
0: the ancient uh, lore, too, that human being is a template. Correct. And that if you wiped out all human beings on Earth uh, and life began over again, it would still... When it comes to... Th- our kind of intelligence, our kind of consciousness, our kind of entity. I'm not talking about entities like suns and planets, because they can be argued are alive too. But they're a completely different uh, state of being. But the ancient law says that, yeah, this is the... uh, the, our level of consciousness would be a human being. Uh, Yes. Not a lizard man, not an insectoid alien or anything like that.
1: That we would end up more or less the way we are. Right. Yeah. And that's that's my... um, uh, general take of it, but that's a very, uh, f- there's no causative, um, elements involved. And so I have these causative elements I- in this understanding. And my understanding goes back to this, uh, group of people that they call the Nummo and the Nummo are aquatic, uh, beings that are basically bipedal, although they have, uh, fins and flippers instead of, uh, feet as we would understand it. Uh, but they would have arms, and in in many ways would look like what we would think of as very ugly uh, mermaids, <laughs> okay. and and I say mermaids because the nummo are are uh, uh, as a species are always at any given time about ninety eight percent female, oh. and they are like those fish, and they make themselves male if procreation is needed. the The nummo are a very sophisticated understanding of um. We have a very sophisticated understanding of the Nemo. It comes from the, um, the Mali people and the Dogon people and other people in Africa. But there's also representations right. in India even with the, the Manu myth. And we take our part of it from the Noah myths, right? Mm-hmm. Where they, uh, the guy on the land is... Gilgamesh. Had, exactly. And he's told by a fish that there's a big flood coming. Well, that fish is the is the nummel. It's a representation of the nummel. and these guys exist.
0: Oneness or something like that in traditional mythology. Uh, I also, think it's oneness. Right. the fish god.
1: And and the um, we even have that up here with the Salish. Okay, I find that the Pacific Coast, uh, of the U.S., the North Pacific Coast, and the uh, Pacific Rim. Um, cultures have a more pristine version of a mythology than we find other areas and so in the Salish area they called the numo changer and changer came to planet uh, our planet in order to rectify a great sin that they, the original sin, okay, the original sin is not ours. The original sin was a the fault of the Nummo, and I can go into that if we care to, to divert. But the Nummo uh, created a, an ecological catastrophe. They let things calm down. They figured out, and then they came back and they cleaned the planet up from the ecological catra- catastrophe that they had allowed to be created. And then they set about trying to rectify things. And according to the Salish myths up here, which are the expositor is raven, Raven was the first creature that was modified by Nummo and to make uh, amends for this great sin that they had uh, allowed to occur against the earth. The bird Raven? The bird Raven, correct. Mm. And so Raven is the expositor. He tells the tale of walking along as Changer does his work. And Changer creates salmon. Changer creates all of the creatures in the ocean. Changer creates the... Uh, the, um, vertebrates and basically what the whole story is about earth is 100% invertebrate and then changer comes and creates life, uh, more complex and stuff that it had allowed to be destroyed. And so, um, uh, from this, we get Raven telling the story of changer going around and how changer is aquatic. It lives in the, in the littoral zone, the tidal zone. It comes out on land, grudgingly and, um, for it under relatively harsh conditions and its feet are such that it can't walk. So it has a device that, that it calls a shoe that allows it to float above the surface of the planet as it goes about its business. And, um, and then there's all of these, these myths about the NUMO coming on in and, and fixing up the planet that they had, um, damaged and they create all the way up to humans and mm-hmm. then they, and we also assume there's as an aside here, we assume that they left some of the humans to be aquatic, and so there may indeed be races of humans living at the bottom of the ocean in tribes that we're just not aware of, but in any event the the point here too is that Numo was but the first now, Numo had enemies, all right, and this may or may not relate to the great war in space. I just don't know mm-hmm. because we're talking about something extremely ancient here with the Numo, but the British believe that the the British royals believe and every year they celebrate their connection to the Nemo. They go all the way. Yes. When the, when the queen and the, and Chucky, the, the, or the heir apparent go and sit on this stone in Wales to, um, reestablish their authority over the, the, the country of the, the island of England and their dominion on the earth. They go through this ritual that relates them back to the great sin, the uh, uh, the problems that were created, and so on.
0: Hmm.
1: And so, I'll just brief, briefly… I de- have
0: to ad- admit, uh, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical to the notion that those kind of people have any kind of spirituality. Sure, they may have rituals and remnants, but uh, you see their consciousness pretty clear. It seems they're only worshipping mammon and ego. And Well,
1: okay, you're, you're correct. Yes, I agree. And this, this, so we need to divert into the actual story, okay? Okay. Okay, okay, so the Nummo come here and they find Earth, and Earth has a number of complex beings on it that are not human, and I'm not even sure that there were vertebrates. But Nummo is Mm -hmm. a vertebrate, and Nummo is a self-generating being. So uh, an individual Nummo knows when its body is going to die, and it gets itself pregnant, creates a new Nummo, and in the process of... Of That birth it transfers its consciousness into that new being and that new body And so the Numo is in that sense immortal. All right mm. uh, But it or in, eternal but it doesn't do it in the same body. It goes from body to body to body, but with a very brief transition Okay, so the Numo come to the planet Earth and they uh, took samples and because their, their thing is to create things, their creator, um, class of beings, they go from planet to planet wherever they can. And basically are like Johnny apple seeds. They yeah. seed life, com- mm. complex life, right? Anyway, and their, their whole thing, according to what can be determined is that they're trying to create uh, vessels for souls to bind to mm. such that there's more opportunities for more incarnation and the complexity of universe grows appropriately mm. in any event though so they come here they take some samples they go away they grow some beings that we would consider to be uh, quasi-humanoid mm. and they come back now here's the thing about Nemo, as i noted earlier they're all female except that they change to become male when it's necessary that procreation should occur mm. well they they in inculcated this um, paradigm to the hominids that they were going to seed on this planet. And so they brought back these beings that were basically androgynous and could be either male or female at will. No,
0: oh, this was before the split of the genders, right?
1: Correct, correct. Okay, so here's what happens. Uh, they bring back um, eight eight of these uh, beings with them to seed. So f- they, they thought these eight beings would be the new uh, uh, being, new race on, on planet Earth. Well, when they get here, um, two of the beings actually commit a sin in the eyes of the Nummo. And this thus we get this idea of a soul taint or an original sin. Mm. And these two beings fell in love, and but they fell in love out of season and in inappropriate genders. So they were both male at the t- time that they fell in love. One of them converted back to female to... Um, uh, have progeny, and that's not the way it was supposed to work, and it was against the nummos rules, so to speak, right? Okay. And and so so this may be our um, original. So love was a sin
0: for them, despite how wise they're uh, allegedly
1: was. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Well, because in their in their species, you had to mate according to. And and do this procreation according to all different kinds of um, protocols, right? History repeats itself, if you ask me. But okay, yeah. Okay, and this <laughs> may be why we have prejudice against, uh, you know, exactly. homosexuals and everything, right? Yep, yep. In any event, though. So here's what happens: uh, they create a progeny, and that progeny goes mad. And so they're here on Earth and the the Numo are very interesting because they don't use like UFO time-folding kind of techniques to get from A to B. They may indeed employ that, but when they're actually powering through into solar systems and stuff, they did it by a a mechanism that was described as a liquid copper engine. All right? We don't know anything about it other than that brief description. Hmm. Except that uh, this progeny of these two uh, individuals. Now that progeny is, is seized upon and declared to be the original ancestor of the British royals. And in fact, all royals on the planet all claim that they are descendant from that, that original.
0: I, I buy that for pharaohs and stuff, but today's royals? I, I today's
1: know. royals, when they're on that rock in, in Wales, the the... Uh, heir apparent must acknowledge to his parent or the person that's sitting in that stone that they are both descendant from that sea monster and those are the terms they use sea monster or aquatic monster and in any event so they do it every year and so this has been going on for as presumably as long as there have been these royals as they've been tying themselves to this lineage
0: they are inbred we know that yeah
1: Correct, correct. And, and, and they're so reluctant to breed out of it because they think of themselves as tied to that particular line. So what happened? Yeah, but I think
0: the line was broken around the Merovingians. They may have the lore and the customs uh, like a museum, but you really think they have managed to preserve their blood? They, now no, we're getting.
1: No, no, no. And I never even go that far. I don't care okay. what their understanding is or. That's
0: David Icke territory,
1: you know? Exactly, and they, they might even be um, uh, completely crazy and quite wrong, so, you know.
0: But it's interesting that they the point isn't that they are a different species than us, but that they have preserved this and that they, to some extent, may even believe it.
1: Correct, but we do know that humanity is a hybrid species. Mm. Uh, we know this, and sure. we have it demonstrated to us every year as uh, women that are Rh negative try to give birth to Rh positive children, mm, and their right. body tries to reject the fetus. Yep. We are indeed a hybrid species. Mm. In any event, I'll I'll get done with this story here real quick. Yep. The um the progeny uh, grows up to be what we would think of as a young adult, and he's uh, he's not mentally stable, and he steals one of the Numo's spaceships and is unable to exit the planet, comes back down and crashes on the, uh, on the Earth and causes a catastrophe as the liquid copper engine pollutes the whole of the Earth's atmosphere and ecosystem. Is this when there was a global fire on Earth? Correct, correct. And so at that point, the uh, NUMO and the remaining um, – uh, and their eight uh, breeding people, their eight humans – uh, hop into spaceships and and beat feet to get away from the disaster. Clever. Some time passes and they all come back. Only now it's a much larger, and it was uh, it's known or thought of that there were 144 uh, uh, hominids that were brought back to help repair. And the 100 100- was there any survivors? Oh, yeah, yeah. The only one that actually died in this was the, um, was the insane progeny. Apparently, the nummo and the other breeding pairs were able to escape the planet in the other spaceships.
0: And didn't many people flee on the ground?
1: There were no people in, in our understanding at that point. Oh, okay. There were, there were only invertebrates. We're talking millions of years back. Yeah. Because, okay. see, this, okay, now this goes on to more ancient but more modern history of like the Anunnaki, okay? Mm. Now, everybody says, or a lot of people will state in the woo-woo world of the New Age movement that the Anunnaki are the creators of humans. And, and I dispute this. The Anunnaki are merely following the Nemo. The Nemo always had enemies. They've always been fighting the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki are DNA harvesters, not creators, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So they're not great uh, engineers, they can just tinker with the stuff that they already find. The Anunnaki were created by the Numo, and they went, and as the Numo do, they allow all these beings to decide their own um, destiny and path. And so the Anunnaki as is they, are as they are, but they resent the Numo being their creators and are always following behind them, taking, uh, and according to my way of thinking, they're claiming the status of the NUMO as creator when, in fact, they were just tinkerers. You know, they didn't build the car. They're just the mechanic that knows how to fix it. Mm. That makes sense.
0: And this dovetails so much with a show we had with a theosophist right. who uh, accounted for the stanzas of Zion. I, I can hear that there's many similarities. You just have a more, should I say... Easier, less symbolic take on it, easier to understand for a modern consciousness. Right, the way you describe it, but but it's a, it's common source. You, you if you rely on those ancient sources in um, among Jains, that should be compatible with the you know other scriptures in that area, Vedas, Upanishads, all that stuff.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's the same damn story, no matter where mm-hmm. you
0: go. Yep. Yep. only it's better to get it in its most original sense uh, rather than the more degenerated.
1: And, and that's why I like the Salish because the Salish people up here have been less polluted; they're more isolated, more isolated and self-isolating. Right? They've kept their mythos very clean. They don't yeah. even write it down very much, and their stories are very precise. Hmm. In in because they when they're repeated, uh, and there's this word habu, which is the the habu habu people say in the audience, which is words of encouragement for the storyteller. But storytellers around here in the Salish tradition, they're not allowed to substitute their interpretation or their words. (laughs) They can certainly embellish. But the the core story is known so well that everybody can repeat certain uh, key passages word for word on the um, on the whole part of the story.
0: This is just so people understand. This is how it used to be uh, all over the earth. You can, for instance, go to Caucasus, the Caucasian Mountains. Do you still have a few ashoks around? There, it's a it's a role, it's a job, like a shaman or whatever. Someone in the tribe has the job of being the one who can remember what happened. Correct. And they have to, they have to memorize extreme details about, because it's all oral, nothing was written in the really old days, for good reason, because see how fragile it is, not even buildings are left, right? <laughs> so, Correct. So, But consciousness is left. So, they. Uh, the reason I mentioned the Caucasus uh, Mountains is that they have a very interesting tradition and that is that different people, because you know it's a melting pot of ethnicity, religion, uh, culture, but what they did, all of them, no matter where they came from, is that they sent their Ashoks, their, their Memory preservers to grand conventions with other people's ashoks, and then they had competitions, you know, like sport, where there was, uh, and this was all uh, embellished in poetry because in poetry uh, you have a system of rhythm and rhyme, so it's much easier to preserve memory if you have that kind of structure to it. And so they would have competitions where they would exchange stuff, uh, and they were also allowed to. Uh, be creative. They they had to repeat what was known but they could do it in new ways and I would say uh, a few sentences and then you would say a few sentences and 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 that way they actually exchanged information too. Let's not uh, we're losing ourselves here but I I think it's interesting (laughs) for people to know that this isn't like a freak uh, incident up where you live. This is how it used to be before all culture were eradicated by modernity. Yeah. So I'm just substantiating what you're saying, if you catch my drift.
1: Yeah, sure. And I actually used to live when I was a child. Um, I was a free range kid in Alaska back before it became a state when it was still a territory. And we uh, wow. because of the nature You're that old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm an old bastard. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay wow kudos man thank you and, and still you're so uh, up to date on stuff like uh, bitcoins and computers and
1: whatnot i'm i'm ahead of date that's amazing that's that's my curse is that i live about two years out in time so it can be very disconcerting and it can cause you problems uh and it can get irritating when you're impatient right anyway okay so uh, i am indeed that old um And, uh, but my father and his position with the military, it was such that, uh, we had a lot of tribal contact with the dinglet. And then, so I lived tribal, you know, from the time I was, uh, able to even get up and walk and go pet the sled dogs, you know? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I've heard it, and that's the way it's done. That's just, you know, cool. that was always my understanding of how history should be transmitted. Yeah. And they would get in there, and they would riff. They would call the poems their songs. Yep. But other than that, it's exactly the same thing in the the convocations, the huge gatherings Uh, where you would have um, dozens of storytellers and they would go on for days, uh, you know, days and days and you'd drift in and out. It's like sort of like a modern sort of like a rock festival. (laughs) That's a
0: great uh, (laughs) analogy. Yeah. Only with contents, but correct. Uh, yeah. People are probably firing up the torches now because we've left Antarctica's subject. Although this is very interesting, maybe we should have you back.
1: Well, for- let's return to Antarctica by way of the myths of the Pacific uh, Islanders. Okay, yep. Because the the myths of the Pacific Islanders say that there was a was a uh, war uh, between peoples between the sky people and uh, the the star people. And that when this war was fought, humans uh, huddled in caves and places to get out of the collateral damage. And that from the position that the Salish occupied, they could see. So up here in the Pacific Northwest, because the Salish are a small group around Puget Sound. Mm. But they could see the reflection in the atmosphere of the um, what we would think of as the bombardments that were occurring in northern Africa. And they could see... Oh. The uh, downpouring uh, from a huge height as all of the clouds of the planet, so far as they could see, were sucked to the south, and that 's when Antarctica was frozen. so whoever right. did it in their view, Antarctica was frozen as a result of an act of war
0: right well, um, according to your model, we can salvage. Uh, the notions of these ancient civilizations because we Antarctica, yes, but you also have Greenland, sure, as a good uh, example of where one of these other ancient continents can have been then if they if i mean if they 're not disappearing uh, under the sea, we have to look elsewhere, and then you have uh, Antarctica and then you have Greenland, and you also have of course Sahara and the Gobi desert, under all those four areas i'm pretty sure. Stuff will be unearthed if we were looking.
1: My my way of thinking is both Gobi and Sahara will be slim pickings because that's where the bombardment was. That's where the burning burning was. Right, right. Right. But Antarctica, that's why I'm so always have been so whipped up about it uh, because it was frozen, flash frozen, preserved. Well, the same same with Greenland. Correct, yeah, yeah. Well, and even the
0: saying now, the scientists up here are saying that if the ice in Greenland which I think will happen now, will drift out in the sea, then that uh, island will rise.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that, I suspect that that when we actually get the, um, that at some point we'll get reverberations through the planet as Antarctica rises, as the ice falls off.
0: So then that may cause a domino effect to places like Greenland. Correct.
1: Interesting. Earthquakes and volcanoes and all of this kind of thing. And coincidentally, by the way, Okay, so here we are in the planet Earth. We're not revolving around the equator of the sun. We're actually being dragged behind it along in a cone with all the other planets, and Mm. our planet is growing. As our planet grows, it's going to drift back further away from the sun and and resettle in a a slightly different orbit. This has occurred in the past. We know that we have 365.25 days in our uh, annual orbit now. It used to be 360. Before that, it was 251 and so on. And so the Earth is every time it grows, it increases its uh, orbital length. We get a longer year. And but, to,
0: but does it grow step by step incrementally, or or in
1: uh, big uh, ga- uh, leaps? Uh, episodes, episodes, not incrementally. No, it's episodic, and we know that this episodic nature can be uh, mm. tied to a bunch of different cycles. One of which, well, two of which we're into right now. All right, mm. so. Every 425 years for a period of 125 years, we have a situation where the large planets cluster on the same side of the the cone trailing behind the sun as ourselves, as does Earth. And so our orbit lengthens by about 3%. In so doing it causes us to be influenced by these large planets in a mass form. And so every 425 years, not only do we get a mini ice age, but we also get um, lots of Earth expansion effects. And if we track these 425-year cycles back, they include such things as the explosions in Krakatoa. And if you went back far enough, you would find that the uh, cycle uh, coincided with the explosions in Yellowstone. And so, during this period of time, Earth is very unstable, and our continents are drifting apart as we're actually being pulled further apart by these planets. Now, it grows because we create new matter. Well, coincidentally, every 425 years, for a period of 125 years, the Earth enters into a mini ice age. This mini ice age occurs because of what the sun does, where the sun's... Uh, corona drops down in size. It's no longer 5,000 Kelvin. It drops down to about 3,000 Kelvin. And much more, much, much more, maybe 40 or 50% more cosmic rays slip around the sun to come into the uh, inner planets, as opposed to when the corona is out there and is acting as an energetic screen Mm -hmm. for many of these particles. And so coincidentally, with the... um, Large planets being over on our side of our orbit, so to speak, relative to the sun, all of us clustered over on the same side of the cone. Coincident to that, we also have this dimming of the sun, more cosmic rays coming down, which allows for more energy to be trapped and more expansion within the Earth. So, and then also, so that's one cycle, this mini ice age cycle that goes all the way back to, well, as we go back, we'll step through things like the Maunder Minimum. Just coincidentally, all this timing is perfect, right? Then there's these things called um, Mankolovich cycles, and those are every one hundred thousand years, and we are slightly overdue for one of those, and we're just now entering into it, and it should uh, be very effective for us around twenty twenty four, and it's a hundred thousand year cycle that's also tied to very large expansion events, and so the Maya. Um, hey, have you have your computer Oracle found any? Uh, uh, point things to
0: that time
1: oh sure oh yeah, yeah yeah oh yeah yeah we've been um i've been just going on and on about all kinds of uh earthquakes volcanoes and other weird things going on uh since 2000 and in 2003 or 4 i started getting language that ultimately i decided i would call rivers in the sky and lakes in the sky absolutely new phenomenon relative to modern humanity uh, and we've had these appear, so those those data sets are indeed prescient, and they are so far quite accurate, and uh, has been um, uh, reasonable to give us some hints and warnings of the kinds of things we're going to be going through relative to these these processes over the next 125 years. Okay, that's another show, though.
0: But oh, yes, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I may I may inquire about safe zones uh, in the break. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, so let's get back to Antarctica then. We have now a backstory for some of the very, very ancient stuff. Is there anything else in history we should touch before we move up to contemporary times?
1: The only thing to touch on is to have a continuing note that the, uh, the Smithsonian is a danger to history. Oh, yeah. And that they are, they are scrubbers of it. And so. Complete bastards. Exactly. They destroy stuff. Exactly. And so far, we have not seen that organization uh, move into Antarctica in any way, shape, or form. So, I think most of it is still relatively preserved.
0: I I think that's for practical reasons, because if they can find something there which will be useful for them for one of two purposes, either profit or technology, especially weaponry, then they won't allow these... Uh, crooks like that those crooks like that are more gatekeepers for our main culture and stuff that they think is not that interesting let's say a weird uh, kind of human skeleton okay you know you can crush that but here we're and at the end i want to talk about the scenarios of what's really going on there but we don't have to get there immediately okay so so yeah i think it's i think it's a good thing they haven't let those crooks lose but i think it's pragmatic reasons uh, it may
1: be the case indeed they may just say nope you know this stuff's too valuable to let you people um, exactly. you know not not show it
0: ideology always yields you know if it's money it's practicality or
1: exactly Mm. Right. And that's why I say CERN is um, a large hadron collider. And the reason they're doing it is just a huge pile of bovine excrement.
0: Yeah, I've heard you talk about that. And I would inquire you if we had better time, but yeah. uh, let's not go there today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's. I mean, that's a can of worms, man. <laughs>
1: yeah, you're closer to it than I am. Yeah.
0: Oh, my God. Yeah. So... Well, let's hope the Earth expands a little rapidly soon, so I'll get further away.
1: <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. Mm.
0: So, uh, we're moving on to, uh, I guess the Nazis would be the next chapter, or is there any noteworthy stuff before them?
1: There was a lot of, um, uh, if you, well, the, like with well, the- bird, obviously. Correct. Well, even with uh, Amundsen and some of the uh, Norwegian explorers, their notes about the peculiar effects and the things that they saw in Antarctica, um, uh, you know, and then Bird with the um, with his uh, understanding of things and his flying about. So, but other than that, our major intrusion then is is with the Germans, and so and then at some point it becomes uh, the Nazis, right? So I, it started off with a German interest. Uh, I think probably driven by energy, because bear in mind, you can actually see um, hints in the late 1800s, 1896 or seven, something like that. There was an article that talked about the potential for Antarctica recently discovered uh, and recently landed upon at that time by the Russians and some stuff coming out of um, Moscow that had been written up in an article in the New York Times which was more scandalous then and more tabloid than it is now. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was talking about the idea that uh, uh, Germany would be down there energetically mining for coal and looking at it as an energy source. So even then, in the late 1800s, we see there were references of uh, German presence or at least thinking about going down there to the point that it percolates into into the articles in the mainstream media.
0: And why not? Because uh, the Germans, far earlier than uh, the Nazi Empire, had huge colonies in their landmass that is geographically closest to Antarctica, namely the Patagonia area. Sure. Uh, if you see the map, you'll see that uh, south of Argentina is the closest. And not yeah. just because they are the southest, further south than South Africa, further south than New Zealand. But also because that area of Antarctica has the largest landmass closest to it. So it's not that far of a gap, actually. So why wouldn't they be interested in their immediate neighbor land? That's just logical, right? Correct.
1: And also Germany was late in the colony rush because they didn't have a huge navy. So unlike the Dutch who were out trying to colonize uh, the South China sea and take over parts of uh, China and these kind of things. The Germans were left behind as a major empire in terms of colonies. They got a couple of small ones in Africa, but you know, in terms of the slicing and dicing of the planet uh, to the major European powers, they were late to the table. So Mm. they had further pickings. They had to go further away to get it. And here was the idea of an ultimate prize. Mm. And so it makes a lot of sense that, uh, the German hierarchy um and that I use I use that word loosely okay because my people are Germanic my father's people are from Germany way back when mm-hmm. but then because I've lived there and stuff and um am aware of the history of it uh, a lot of when you say Nazis everybody thinks of um or there's a a common perception of a of a megalithic kind of a nazi empire Mm. and that that really is nothing could be further from the truth the germanic states were always warring states among themselves and once they consolidated under i think it was the first frederick that king of prussia that took over and made the, the largest germanic state to that point the fractured part of it continued within their military Even within the various uh, forces there. So you would have the German Navy that was vying against the German Army, that was vying against the German Air Force, all operating their own uh, military industrial complex in essence. So So it's like the USA today. Correct. Correct. And it's the model we took. You know, there's a lot of Germanic people. German is still the second, outside of Spanish, it's the second largest uh, language group in the US. So, so we get to that, that point where the Germans decided, okay, they were going to go on down, and they took a slightly different approach to it, which was in the 30s, they were going to basically colonize big chunks of Antarctica. This is before the Antarctic um, uh, collective agreement among all of the modern states, and uh, the Germans were going to just colonize it, basically move people in and all of this kind of stuff and exploit the land and the resources and chose that area that they called New Schwabenland. And then we start getting all of the, um, rep- like I say, that's the first casualty of the Second World War, the first annexated
0: country. They they think it's Poland, no, it's
1: no, Norway. No, yeah, <laughs> <coughs> yeah, it was taking o- taking over tori- territory in Antarctica, and then we we never really hear. Or there is very little continuity of history to provide us an idea of what the hell they were doing there. But we get all, and we
0: don't have to go too much in detail because we've covered this in other shows, and we're gonna cover it with other people. But it's worth mentioning that uh, they put uh, uh,
1: complete; it went completely black. Correct, correct. And I was just the the point I wanted to bring up was that when I first um uh, went to when I was first in country in Germany as part of the, um, uh, occupation forces dependence. So my father was a military officer who was there after the war as part of the occupation forces. And I was, uh, we were allowed concurrent travel and and stayed in, um, uh, Germany with him. And mm. so things were reasonably peaceful then in the late fifties, early sixties. Mm. But when I first went there, uh, they were in the process of a cleanup of their museums and all of this sort of thing of uh, pre-war history, basically. And and at the time, I assumed it was they were trying to sanitize their culture from the… Nazi heritage. Correct. But in fact, what turned out to be was a selective plucking out of all of these museums. And there were a number of museums in in the area that we were um, staying at, which was uh, near Stuttgart. Hmm. Southern Southern Germany. And there were a number of museums that had South Pole exhibits, and those were removed. And I remember as a school child going uh, from the – I was at a German school, uh, and uh, we would go with English teachers. It was just a weird situation uh, with other other students that were French and Russian and Polish and so on. Mm-hmm. But we would go and look at these museums, and there was two museums that were reasonably close that I actually went to on my own after the class experience because they were just chock full of Antarctic stuff, wow. everything from stuffed penguins to... Um,
0: but but was this stuff that was brought there during the Nazi period or even before? No, or? no,
1: earlier, mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. Because, see, here's the thing. So much of the... Um, cultural infrastructure of Germany was destroyed, that those that were left were, were highly, um, prized and used. Okay. So, so Mm. just curiously at that time in the sixties, there were more Germans in their German museums than any foreigners. Uh, even under organized circumstances, we were always outnumbered by the local population looking at stuff. And it's because they had so few museums left Mm. after the bombings and so on. Right.
0: And people need to know also that before the Nazis took over, Germany was the last, should I say, occult. Or uh, if you go back to this diversion in royal society and among scientists, we have the more spiritual scientists and the more materialist scientists. So the last bastion, the last, uh, what you say in English, you say... um, (laughs) Redoubt of the spiritual traditions. Where in Germany, there was before the Nazis took over, there were even uh, occultists were even marching in the streets, taking part in the political uh, battles that were going on. So, they, they, and alchemists uh, and scientists were often one and the same. So, there was a lot of room for this old uh, alternative thinking that was eradicated uh, after the war because. Probably because it was associated with Nazism or even more probably because materialists had entered and they didn't want any, you know. Uh, uh,
1: references to consciousness being supreme. Exactly. Correct. Correct. And so, see, that's really the business I'm in these days is consciousness science. Mm. Uh, curiously, it's it's worked out that, um, uh, I mean, even like major sports teams have contacted me in the U.S. here to to consult with them on consciousness science, so that they can theoretically get an edge in their sports activities. Mm. Uh, I won't go into who or anything. No, th- but it's the future. I agree with you. Correct. So, yeah. Correct, and it's actually a future by way of a return to the past. <laughs> yeah, that's true, <laughs> so, true. So, but yeah, so in that in that experience in Germany, there were there were uh, the the thing to note in the, seeing that museum was that there was a femur bone that was easily uh, uh, obviously human and it would have made that human be about eleven or twelve feet high. Wow. And it was exhibited So giants in Antarctica. Yeah and it would say yeah exactly. And it was said the in the you know in German the little tag to it said bones of the giants found in Antarctica. Yeah. And then there's a little discussion about how they found huge amounts of bones and even um, graveyards. Not wow. just cataclysmic, you know, all crushed together kind of bones, right? But uh, systematically buried individuals that apparently had femurs that were uh, four and five feet long, that kind of thing. So, so I was quite intrigued, and then of course you ask the the teachers about it, and they say I'm basically horse shit. And then you're saying, but it's right over there. And then <laughs> within that first year, within that first year, a lot of strange things occurred. Okay, mm-hmm. and one of them was that these museums were stripped of all of that. Mm-hmm. Another thing that was w- occurred that I was aware of was that all of these Nazi uh, literature that was related to this guy that we called um, uh, Colonel Doctor Herr Camel. Uh, his name was Kammer, I think. He was a uh, Africa Corps. Hans Kamler. Kamler, correct, correct. Yeah. He was the head of the Africa Corps at the time, right? And where I was, they had a um, cache of um, books that he had had. Um, or that had been prepared at his direction and were all stamped with the Africa Corps symbol of the palm trees behind the camel. And that's why my brother and I called him uh, Colonel hair, Dr. Camel, uh, because they were all addressed to him. Uh, and these, these crates had all been prepared by the German military that were housing books that were just truly marvelous books in our opinion. Mm. Now, uh, the circumstances that we saw the books are neither here nor there, but some of the books were, uh, Mayan, that had had five or six languages uh, uh, that had been translated into five or six languages. So you'd see a leaf from a book that was uh, Mayan um, glyphs, and then you'd see a translation into uh, Hebrew and then you 'd see a translation into English and then a translation into german and of course i couldn 't read the Hebrew or the German at the time, so I would read the english and and you got the impression of um, that these were a a systematic effort to hunt for something the way that today I would hunt for it with databases mm. and that they were attempting to to ascertain something all of this stuff going to basically uh, prehistory consciousness science, and Antarctica. Mm.
0: And isn't it interesting that uh, before the Nazis explored that area, the, the, when they decided to do this, and I have uh, Joseph Farrell has elaborated a little on this, they contacted Bird because he was, you know, uh, the renowned uh, Antarctica expert back then, and they knew obviously about his claims about hot zones and pristine areas. Undiscovered. So what did he, I bet he regretted later when
1: uh, yeah, the participation,
0: <laughs> it became a conflict, right? right? But the interesting thing is that who sponsored this? Well, it was Hess and Goering. Hess was uh, raised in Alexandria. He was familiar with esoteric lore. He was probably one of the m- much more occult than Him- Himmler was a non-entity. He, he wasn't deep at all. Yeah, he was obsessed by these things. But Hess had a much more proper understanding than Himmler about these things. And so that Hess wants to send down expeditions down there smacks off everything we've been talking about. Antediluvian mythology, uh, Atlantis, whatever, right? But that yeah. Goering is sponsoring this. That's a practical that's a, man like Goering. I know.
1: That's a staggering. That's your engineers.
0: Right. And that's military. That's,
1: you know, that's the uh, that's
0: technology.
1: Correct. I was just gonna say that's the army, that's the Prussian army, that was the core of the um uh their grasping for technology. And that's really all of the stuff that my brother and I were reading out of these books went to was the um it was they were focused on that. There'd be vast areas that weren't translated, and then you'd see the areas that were translated and it was all about machines and, and history and so on. Mm. Curiously, it, that was the first time I'd ever seen Ratzinger. Uh, who became Pope and he was at that, he was at that point in the sixties. He was, uh, in some manner, he was a German prelate, I guess you would say, or, you know, a officer of the church or whatever. And he came on over under these weird circumstances and all these crates of books were sealed up by American GIs and put in the back of some trucks that were driven by German. And Ratzinger was the guy that was in charge of picking them all up. (laughs) (laughs) there you go i I observed this i was up on the third floor and watched this whole operation because i was scandalized that they were taking my books away but
0: that goes in line with ratzinger's new line of uh, profession because if there's anyone who's famous for stealing and monopolizing (laughs) and putting covert ancient information it's the vatican right so Mm -hmm. he chose he was consistent in his choice of career. I have to give him that. Uh, And by the way, I want to make a shout out right now uh, for the next recording we're going to do, which will be with Joseph Farrell. And it will actually concern both Antarctica but also Hess and Goering. Those two people as different as they were, as different factions as they were heading had a common interest that was so deep that they may actually have tried to overthrow Hitler. But that's another story with another guest. But since we are touching it now, <laughs> I'm right. advertising it because this, this show will come out before that. So so that's one to watch, people, if, if you think this is an interesting part of history. But we have to move on. There's so much material we have to go through. Anything else you want to mention about your Germany experience connected to Antarctica? No,
1: nothing that's that's particularly pertinent now. And then we come later on to my Uh, Later in life mucking about with the data and as I said in 1997 one of the first anomalous sets I got and the largest outside of the one for the Sun was about Antarctica And of course I was quite intrigued, you know and and so universe obviously wanted me to pursue it because I had the Particular inclination and perhaps I will bring something to it that others won't for its purposes not ours We can never determine that ourselves, Hmm. but in any event so since then I've been clued in dialed into it and have always watched the data sets as we've been going along. And that led me up to the point of getting fantastic information out of my data sets and forecasts about Antarctica, some of which I was able to validate by going into current maps and kinds of things to get uh, you know, real world examples. And then recently a couple of years back, I ran into the pollution into my data sets as a result of this, um, uh religious cult of uh people that worship these blue space chickens and their influence on the internet and their uh focus on Antarctica that got me into a circuitous loop
0: you are talking about the corey good uh, correct cory
1: Go- the blue blue avians corey good thing are you taking that seriously okay so the thing about no I'm not taking them seriously what happened was that the uh, they had a, they have a fascination with Antarct- Antarctica.
0: Yeah, no, but look, they they steal everything that's
1: pop. Well, that, was, that was my point. Okay. That was my point, though, is they stole my stuff out of my written reports oh. and fed it back in through their own audience. Their own audience is such within them. Uh, they do
0: that with everyone. Pharrell, you name it. That's what right. they do.
1: Right. But in this case, I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know what was going on. This is my fault. I got screwed up. Had I known it was happening, I could have um, uh, prevented the data pollution, but it got into a circuitous loop. And and, uh, we have to understand I tuned my lexicon constantly. So I was tuning my lexicon to their pollution of my data, which threw that whole thing off. Uh But prior to that, I had some really good information about Antarctica that they were stealing and... and, um, uh, piggybacking on for their own purposes. And see, I'm, I'm working in my bubble and I didn't even know these guys existed. And when I did see that they existed, I, I was just irritated at their use of the word ascension relative to densities and never saw beyond that. Right, right.
0: Well, you you have the floor today, so you can uh, elaborate on your version. I have plenty of time so we can make a part three here because uh, episode uh, part two is <laughs> almost done, so we have to take a break in <laughs> about 15 minutes. Sure. And if you have more sure. juice in you, we'll, we'll take another part there. I, I have plenty of time. But I want to recap just for the benefit of order and the poor audience that may have fallen off the trail here because we have uh, because it's all building up to a crescendo uh, for the end and so don't worry you can just ramble on I'm, I'm keeping track here and I'm keeping notes
1: <laughs> ok good deal, good deal.
0: so there's going to be some order out of this but I want to recap and that is that first we have the weird ancient stuff right uh, whatever that's worth then we know that let's start with bird then Uh, We know that Bird found, discovered something. I don't buy into those uh, diaries. I think they are fakes, but that doesn't take anything away from the mystery because even without those diaries, we have accounts that something extraordinary. Then we have the at least the Nazis, if not people before them, but at least the Nazis, something going on there. Uh, What did they find? Why did they become obsessed? Because militarily speaking, it would be more sense that they made, which they did, lots of caves in Greenland and stuff like that. But why build all these bases in at the end of the
1: world, right? (laughs) Right, right. So that's... uh, And then we pick it up. As the USA, instantly. Well,
0: the Russians in the 60s is is the next step, I'm guessing.
1: I would say the U.S. in 1948-49, right after the disastrous uh, Operation High Jump.
0: Yeah, let's go a little into that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so, just temporally, Operation High Jump occurs. There's some major battle. We lose all kinds of um, uh, personnel and resources in a mysterious fashion. A few lines in a in a Patagonian newspaper reference uh, flying saucers and this sort of thing. And then everything basically goes dark. And at that point, we start seeing that Antarctica is given a uh, different presence in the uh, League of Nations, UN kind of thing. Yeah that's
0: when they suddenly come together to make a uh, no song.
1: Correct. Mm. Correct. And of course this is 1947 the crash of the ships in uh, the Arizona area the you know the whole CIA
0: is established.
1: Correct. All of these interesting things occur. And then also at that point when when this occurred the United States military the army more than the navy or anything but the army went back um, to Antarctica in 1948 and 49, in spite of what had happened with Bird. Mm. So, so whatever that occurred in the Operation High Jump was apparently no longer a threat in 48 and 49. And then throughout the early 50s is when they get up to the point where they're starting to to include the idea of bringing in this nuclear power plant and establishing permanent bases and these sort of things within an army paradigm. And then that goes black. Now, curiously about this, I, I was able to get hold of a ninth copy of the 1956 a Federal Register that was a printed version, and this was a number of years back. And within that version were a number of uh, contracts being let for um, technology that I basically uh, was able to, or that I assumed that I, my conclusion was: aha, we've we've crossed as of 1956, we've crossed the threshold of exploration of this alien technology to exploitation of it. Why are you saying alien technology? Because of the uh, from 1947 through to 56 is the Federal Register, which is this document of contracts let by Congress, it, they used to write up to the point of the black ops. Would include everything,
0: but when you say alien, you mean like it's it's strange to us. That's what you mean. No, no,
1: no, 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 no. Like they actually used that term. They used alien, but they meant foreign. Okay, right, At right, the to- right. It okay, Do- so doesn't have to-, have to mean little green man from Mars, right? Correct. We mm. have to we have to watch language here because exactly. in the late forties, the idea alien and foreign were were one hundred percent interchangeable, and it wasn't until forty seven in the crash of those ships that we started seeing the separation of the language and the tonality change. For the word "alien" as opposed to its earlier meanings, language changes over time. So there's all of these ambiguities that get into it. You got to be careful about
0: it. And they're so important. So yeah, Mm.
1: correct. And in 1956, in that uh, exploitation phase, there were contracts being let in 1956 for um, companies that we would know, uh, JPL kind of things, uh, Lockheed Martin, and this sort of thing. There were contracts. They were at it already then. There were active contracts for Antarctica and they were exploitation contracts, not a contract to go on out and map or ex- mm. explore this area, but rather contracts that were involving the moving of. of Uh, people and materiel to various different parts of antarctica for specific although unnamed purposes so we were exploiting something and that was the first real ramp up was in 56 and then that manifested in the big surge of uh, military personnel which to date we still don't know how many that was in 1958
0: and since 19 oh hang on hang on i have to interject sure in 58 and 59 something weird happened the alleged enemies, Soviet and U.S. and England, and I think maybe also France, came together and they blasted nuclear weapons in Antarctica. Now, this because of the signature, there's only two uh, possibilities. One is that they did it high up in the atmosphere. Can you spell flying saucers? Right. The other is that it could have happened deep underground or underneath. That's uh, as far as I understand. That seems
1: unlikely. Hmm? I say that seems unlikely. Well, can you spell hollow earth? Perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. But here's another thing about that. In 58 was when we first get, and this was my point of bringing this up. Uh, when the when the U.S. military moved in and on Moss in 1958, and however big that mass was, we don't know. But it was of course, certainly dwarfed by current population. Mm. But when it, when they first started doing that, that's when we got enough personnel there that we had enough uh, overflight capability, continuous airplanes being on site on Antarctica that were used as as local transportation, that we, that we started replicating some of the things that were mentioned uh, by Byrd in his flight logs about weird effects on machinery over certain parts of the Antarctic continent, usually within East Antarctica as opposed to West Antarctica, although you also see them in some minor degree in Western w- Antarctica.
0: Would East be the Vostok area?
1: Correct. Correct. That's, and then all the way up into the German area and all the way back down to um, McMurdo Bay and all of that. That's all on East Antarctica. Mm. And it's there that we see that you, Bird reports all these strange uh, characteristics trying to fly around. And it was, but what's curious is that in the, in the um, documents released in 59 or 60, I can't remember which year, was a discussion about a contract being let to map flight irregular zones. Mm. Okay, and these flight irregular zones ended up being no fly zones later on. Mm. And the flight irregular zone was characterized by engines cutting out, communications going black, airplanes, you know, drifting down out of the sky, that sort of thing. And so we had enough activity going Bermuda Triangle. Correct. <laughs> we had enough, we had enough, or, you know, magnetic effects, but they weren't magnetic because it didn't I- intrude on compasses or any of this sort of thing. Right. Everything just shut down. So, but we started seeing. No, saying, but,
0: but, but it's a matter of fact, in case people in the audience don't know, it's a matter of fact that to date no commercial planes are flying over the pole, neither north nor south. The poles are completely off limit Correct. and of course it's also logical because you can't use any, I think only a gyroscope is what you can use to really orientate yourself with uh, at the poles because they you, they are dependent on being able to measure uh, magnetism and stuff. And that completely breaks down at the poles. So uh, they have that excuse, obviously. But we can't even go there physically. And I'm going to later tell you a couple of anecdotes from people I know and what's happened to them down there. But go on. Just wanted to interject. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, So in any event, I was going to say from that point on, Antarctica is is only and always referenced as basically being a cruise or a sea destination. In other words, you don't fly to Antarctica to get on a cruise boat. You you go to New Zealand to get on a cruise boat right, or right. you go would go in some other landmass and so nobody is flying down there and there's probably a really good reason about as to why that's going on. But in any event, so Don't you think the military is flying there? That's the curious part of it all, okay? Because the military has certain restrictions on flying there even uh, to this date. The reason that I know this is because I'm in the Pacific Northwest and as screwy as it sounds, uh, the military base up here, um, the air force base McCord uh, at the local joint military base, uh, Fort Lewis McCord, McCord is, is, or used to be the major staging area for us military flights down to Antarctica. And we would see C one thirties, big giant cargo planes, very heavily loaded, uh that just you you know listening to them fly over your house, you just know they're gonna crash. You just know they're too heavy to make it. But they've got so much fuel and material and stuff when they take off that they groan getting up into the sky and things, right? And this mm-hmm. went on for a number of years. And we would just notice, oh hey, it's you know Antarctica season. Here they go. And for weeks at a time you'd have these very large airplanes that would take off and head down there. They're not doing that so much anymore but uh, uh in, like in the last t- so when was this about approximately this would have been through the um all through the 80 70s 80s and 90s and just into the 2000s a little bit maybe 2005 the, or 6 there was a big year and then since then we haven't had much activity
0: that's terribly interesting because something happened in 2011 I'm going to tell you about in the next part um so so there were, if there were actually we can take it now maybe uh sure you see, there's this explorer. He's like a kind of a macho man. He's called Jarl Andre, and he had a boat called Berserk, and they were like uh, sailing all over the world, especially the poles. And uh, he was—he's like a renegade, like a rebel, an anarchist almost. So he didn't care if the Norwegian government didn't give him permission to go down there. He went anyway. And, for him. <laughs> yeah, and people think it's like easy to go there. People try to debunk stuff. We've talked about this before. Oh, no, it's so no, no. Everybody can. Oh, that's cruise. No, you can't. Uh, people have no idea what terrible bureaucracy it is to even get permission to to even sail in the area. Uh, you, if you're just a ordinary person, if it's not good commercial or military reasons, for science. Good luck. Try it. Good luck. You you won't get. it Yeah, that.
1: you just won't get it. Nope.
0: So it's not just that they censor everything and uh, safety
1: concerns. But yeah, you just don't get permission to do
0: it. <laughs> safety, right? But everywhere else, that's dangerous. Go ahead. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, no, but they did it, and something happened, and I'm not at liberty to say everything I've been told by one of the survivors crew members that I incidentally know because he's from my town Uh, but what you can read about in the news is that these very experienced sailors who's been there many times were docking Uh, I wonder if it's if it was in the Ross Sea but they were docking uh, the boat and then they sent three of the guys inland Uh, I forgot what uh, they were going to do but while they were inland, there were a few people back in the boat. Their storm broke loose, and they lost contact with each other, the boat and their crew uh, inland. And if you ask me, I would rather be in a boat, safe and sound, with coffee and uh, heat and <laughs> anchor, right? In a storm, right. than being a poor fellow uh, out in the ice. So they were setting up tent and they are Vikings, they survived. And when they came back to the boat, it was gone. What was left, they found some uh, traces here and there. Now I have to be careful what I say. But the thing is, the official story is that, oh, well, uh, the boat went under in the storm. It has to be a hell of a storm for a boat who's sailing all over the world, who's anchoring Uh, at least if it's that bad they could have uh, tried to flee like those who were on foot but those on foot were much worse obviously they were in tents and they survived and the Norwegian government tried to crush them instead of helping them instead of uh, offering them uh, you know what would happen anywhere else in the world Uh, they had to finance their own expeditions to try to find and they found remnants and from what they found, it seems that the boat was uh, bombed. Oh. It was destroyed. And uh, these guys aren't VUVU guys at all. I doubt they even know what a UFO is. <laughs> okay. Right. So, well, I, I'm putting it, uh, that's rhetorical. But the thing is, this is in February 2011. And you're saying it's not ordinary even for the military to fly around there. So who shot, asunder their boat? Who killed? Why were they killed? Did they were they witness to something they shouldn't be witness to? This is the mystery, right? Yeah. Uh, I can't say so much. I even went too far with what I said now. So, um, and that's because I promised that guy, right? It's not because
1: I'm a shill or I don't want. Sure, sure. I have I have that same situation. I've got a promise I made to a guy who was in. Catalonia who sent me some photographs of pyramids in Antarctica that he had personally taken and he said I can reveal who he is in the photographs when I hear of his death and he's got um, someone who will let me know when that occurs and prior to that time it was just for my information so the two of us could discuss it there are some things I can say in a general way as to how it occurred to to him that he got these photos and what was going on wow. and they also spe- it also speaks to the weirdness that is Antarctica. Because this guy was, say, he was given permission to go hiking, to do an exploratory hike. It was very rare. He was with a group. They were going to go with their climbers. This was a group of very experienced mountain climbers. When was this? I got to be real careful there because that betrays too much, okay? But let's just say that it was 80s, 90s. Correct. Let's just—I was just going to mm-hmm. say—let's just restrict it to a broad area in the in the late 80s and into the 90s. All right. Okay. And so he he gets permission to go down with a group of people. Uh, he is in Catalonia. He's not Catalonian. Uh, we won't go into any of their nationalities or anything. Sure. But this group of people were given permission to go into the British zone because they wanted to try climbing in some mountains that the British had. Uh, uh, titular control of and they go and they do the climb and he said it was in their climb that and they were all fitted with these very uh, cumbersome big bulky things that they had to haul with them which they were told were for their own safety and security and these were like EPIRBs like uh, personal uh, location beacons and uh, they were just clunky and the guy resented having this thing slapping on his back as he's trying to climb these very icy uh precipitous routes but they found two things that were really interesting to him the routes were easy they'd been climbed many times before and he said as a climber he said he saw climbers marks all over every single place they had to make a decision as to which way to go Hmm. and climbers have a particular iconic iconographic approach to leaving marks for each other and for themselves as i turned here in order to get back i got to go back this way that kind of thing but they don't do it in language they do it in particular marks chopped into the ice or under the rock here they found climbers marks etched into rock that was under ice and so the climbers had obviously been climbing before the ice had been uh, taken over that area and they actually chipped through some ice to make some marks on rocks only to discover the rock was just filled with such marks. And then they come out of this valley or come out of this crevasse, or not crevasse, this um, uh, pass, if you will, a naturally occurring trail, a kind of a single uh, wide kind of a trail, and he said that he, as each of these individuals came out, they were staggered because there, across this little plain in front of them, were three giant pyramids. One of which uh, had a entrance level or a doorway that had an arch above it, and that that doorway is probably thirty or forty meters tall and might be uh, twenty meters wide, and is about a third of the way up the pyramid. And down below it are giant stairs that they, they could, when they got to that area, they could reach the top of the stairs with their uh, ice axe. So it was probably about, the stairs were probably about 11 feet high, the rise on the stairs. And they were able to do some level of, of climbing before they were snatched out. Now, here's wow. the deal. The the interesting part of this is not what they saw, the pyramids and so forth, but the fact that as soon as it became known through these uh, location beacons that these people had wandered off of the area they were supposed to be and had gotten up into this uh, uh, pass and then down into this valley, uh, it, he said their beacons started going off, the little red things were flashing like mad, none of the individuals had pulled the trigger the emergency locator thing, and he said within a half an hour to 40 minutes, there were helicopters coming in to get him, And it was not British people in helicopters. It was Americans in very heavily altered Huey kind of helicopters and that were able to fly in that particular region. It's difficult for helicopters to fly in the cold under any circumstances, but they didn't even know helicopters were available on the entire continent of Antarctica, and here were three of them that came plowing over the top of this hill. And then, then there was this guy who shouted at them in in English uh, through a loudspeaker system to get away, to stand over in this area, and not to move, or they would be shot. And right. uh, and so they did as they were told. They were scooped up and quickly hustled out of out of Antarctica. He said there was not uh, um, an extra minute wasted in stripping them of everything. He was fortunate enough to. When he, when he was he, as he told me, when they said that they were going to shoot him, he said he thought about swallowing his film canister and did not do that, but instead tore the the finger off of a glove, uh, took the film out of the camera because we're talking thirty five millimeter mm-hmm. uh, film itself, you know, mm-hmm. put it in the finger of the glove, and then secreted the finger of the glove in uh, his shorts near his groin and that was the only way that he got out because they were stripped down to their underwear, given new clothes put on a on another helicopter at this base taken back to their embarkation point and hustled the hell out of the out of the uh, antarctic area and they were not allowed to talk to each other. They were always kept separate after the helicopters picked them up so the pictures survived yes, and I have some copies of the pictures like um uh run through a xerox machine are these and the pictures that are all over the internet no mine I've never I've never seen the ones I have and I've never released the ones I've had. But uh, is it the same pyramids? No. Uh, but it's very similar. I mean, it's hard to say one pyramid from another, but I don't believe they're the same. No.
0: That's so interesting for so many reasons. I had pyramids uh, on the top of my list of where we were going next. That connects the ancient with, with the modern. But uh, you you got a. But now I was thinking of taking a break, but I'll give people a very hot bone before we take that break. And that is... This may be the same expedition, actually. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but anyway, there was an expedition. Another Norwegian. This was a woman. She's been many times at the Pole. She's like this super-viking woman, a scientist. She, her name is Monica Christensen. People can Google her. Now, she, what I'm going to say now is partly speculation, but it's inferred from facts. Because I were following it back in the day. In December 1993, they were taking like a not a real pole, because for a Norwegian to go on a real polar expedition, you, you basically have to use ski and dogs, right? Right. <laughs> These are professionals. They've done it many times before. These ta- This time, they had snowmobile and uh, they were, and I, I think they were, internet. I think they at least had a German with them, so not just Norwegians. Here's the weird thing. I remember it from the, pre- even back then, this was before, yeah, before internet and all that, but um, Still, it was weird stuff. And the papers weren't that censored back then. So what happened is that this was going to be a symbolic mission for the Norwegian Olympic events that were going to happen in 94, the the year after. So it was connected to that. It was like a PR stunt, whatever. So, I think they were going to find uh, traces of Amundsen or something. It was going to be like a uh, run-of-the-mill thing. Yeah. So, what happens is that a huge tragedy. We get reports that one of the people in the mission is dead. And she's in tears. She's uh, like, uh, she's seen a ghost. After that, she stopped everything to do with Paul and she got a completely different line of business. Now, what had happened, uh, according to the official story, is that, oh, they had... uh, what, is it called a lavine? Like a sure. hole? And yeah. So these professionals, this guy who died had fallen down in a lavine and they had Americans, they had a search and rescue mission from Americans. It, th- that smells fishy. So they had come with choppers and everything. And the Americans threatened to sue her uh, if she, if she spoke about that. And they too had gone astray, allegedly by mistake. These professional people who knows what they're doing, they were, had gone where they weren't supposed to go. And so that what's interesting about these things is that both in Yola Ondo and in Monica Christensen's case, what makes me extremely suspicious is the aftermath. Both of them are getting into all sorts of legal trouble. Right. Both of them are threatened with lawsuits. In in Yala's case, because he's a rebel, he didn't comply. He, he got fined. He lost people in his expedition. And he gets court cases. It's still going on, I think. And they tried to bankrupt him. And this, uh, and, and she got threatened with this. And both of them sued if they talk. Actually, Yala was sued and blamed. He was first threatened. If he didn't comply, they were going to punish him, which they did. So they bogged him down in economic uh, mess because he talked too much. And she was terrified when she came back. In fact, she... she uh, She wasn't allowed to talk. So it was just a press release that they wrote. She didn't even control that. And why are the Americans suing? And why are the Americans threatening to ruin them economically? The Americans, (laughs) jeez. So it's it's not just fishy, it smells rotten fish. What are they so afraid of? Yeah. Why would you treat people in a tragedy like this, right? And what what the heck does the American... uh, Helicopters, search and rescue mission. Doesn't sound like uh, nerdy scientist in McMurdo to me. Sounds like military. Correct. Yeah. In fact, if I recall right, it may have been military. So this was in December. 93. Well, you have to
1: get military permission to go there. Pardon? I say even today for even uh, on cruises here. If I were to apply to go to, uh, if I wanted to get on a cruise to go to Antarctica, I don't just buy a ticket. I I do have to buy a ticket to get to the boat and so forth. But as soon as I buy the ticket for the boat, my uh, credentials have to be, you have to fill out this form and it is actually passed through the Department of Defense, goes through the Pentagon to see if I'll actually get permission or not to go there. So e- even, now. but
0: she had permission, right Monica Christensen was an official expedition team because they are better thinking, oh, these naive bothersome norwegians they 're always going to walk on the poles right <laughs> so if it 's if it's yeah. official we 've done it for centuries, so if it 's official, they kind of have to go along, but it 's pretty restricted. I had a teacher uh who used to in in that's when I first got interested in Antarctica this was in kinder's sc- children's school, which is a primary school, sure, not gymnas but Belov gymnas, so he was one of the official scientists who worked in the base there, and he told me that he used to have like these pictures. Uh, on a screen projector, right? And he talked and talked about Antarctica. But he was a scientist, a nerd, so it wasn't anything interesting beyond geography and geology and stuff like that. But I remember he told me that they had to stuff, oh no, that wasn't allowed. No, the, you couldn't do this. Everything had to be cleared and cleared and cleared in a huge bureaucracy, international bureaucracy, where I'm pretty sure Pentagon is at the top of the decision chain.
1: I would agree. I would agree, yes.
0: And it's, it's weird, you know. I mean, it, it's a f- irritating. <gasps> it is. And uh, my point is, when you see the context of these anecdotes, I mean, yours were downright, you have hardcore evidence. But uh, the way I present it, granted that everything I said now is accurate about the two other missions, don't you agree it smells?
1: Oh, certainly. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it, they are certainly covering up something. And I think it, it now is just, you know, yet another front on the great consciousness war. Because think mm. of how the, the consciousness of humans would change if we knew exactly. where we come from and what our real history was like. And I actually think that's what's going on in Antarctica Is they've found...
0: Oh, don't spill the beer. Okay. Don't spill the beer. <laughs> okay. We're going to go straight to the answers in part three. <laughs> so stay okay. tuned, people. You don't <laughs> want to miss this. All of our files are free.